Africa rise and shine Africa zorna Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Tracy Bumgard, Wisani Makubele and Tami Guza. Top stories on Africa rise and shine at this hour. UN envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in Central Africa. Vote counting continues in Mozambique and Botswana and South Africa set to boost relations. In economics, Botswana refutes claims that fracking is underway in the country. And in sports news, 12 soccer fans die celebrating Algeria's World Cup qualification. But first in news with Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Lulu. Mozambique's National Election Commission is to withhold election results from Nampula in the north of the country. Voting in yesterday's municipal polls was largely peaceful, despite tension and sporadic violence between the Frelimo-led government and the Renama opposition. The two parties are former civil war foes. Commission spokesperson Paolo Quinica says the elections went well except for faulty printing of the ballot paper used in Nampula. The name of the candidate, of one of the candidates, which is Flomena Mdoropa, was omitted during the printing of the final ballot paper for the president of the municipality of Nampula. As such, the election has to be repeated until the 1st of December. A student has been shot dead in clashes between supporters of ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi and security forces at Al-Azhar University in the capital Cairo. Security forces stormed into the university yesterday after they were called in to control the protesters who set fire to trees inside the campus. Supporters of Morsi's Muslim Brotherhood protest frequently at the university. Morsi was ousted by the army in July after mass protests against his rule. The move set off some of the worst violence the country has seen in decades and led to a government crackdown against the Muslim Brotherhood in which thousands have been arrested. The students organized the Azad University protest to demand the release of jailed student activists who were arrested after previous clashes at the university. The United States has expressed concern about growing violence and lawlessness in the Central African Republic. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has called on the international community to support this peacekeeping force in order to restore security in the country. Kerry says the United States would work with other nations to press for a credible political transition. U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon earlier this week said he may be prepared to deploy U.N. peacekeepers to the Central African Republic. Kerry says the U.S. believes that the African peacekeeping force is the best mechanism to quickly tackle the violence and prevent further atrocities. Both South Africa and Botswana say the newly established Binational Commission will help to oversee the political relations between the two countries at the presidential level. President Jacob Zuma will host his Botswana counterpart Ian Kama 
for the inaugural session of the BNC between the two sister republics in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, this morning. This inaugural meeting follows the signing of an agreement to establish the South Africa-Botswana BNC during Zuma's state visit to Gaborone last year. The annual binational commission, co-chaired by both presidents, will alternate between the two countries. Botswana's president, Ian Kama, says the BNC is a testimony of the seriousness of their relations, describing it as a sign of better things to come. We have had these discussions which have enabled us to chart a way forward in further expanding the scope of our bilateral relations, as well as improve the welfare of our people. I wish to point out that the elevation of our bilateral issues from operational level to that of head of state is not only a manifestation of the importance with which we attach to our bilateral relations, but a sign of the seriousness of our two governments to ensure that these relations are taken to greater heights. The debate to limit foreign ownership of the private security industry and allegations of illegal monitoring of the movements of South African citizens by some private security companies continues to intensify in Parliament. The Private Security Industry Regulation Amendment Bill, which seeks to regulate the security industry, now makes provision for the limitation of foreign ownership to 49%. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has described the move to limit foreign ownership of the security industry as xenophobic. DA spokesperson on police, Diane Kola-Barnard, says this will chase away foreign investors. Let us say it's a Greek permanent resident here for 30 years. That little man will have to sell 51% of his business to a South African. There are major companies who will pull their companies out of South Africa. Anyone wanting to put their money into South Africa will change their mind on hearing. And I'll be back with headlines at the bottom of the hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Thank you, Tracy. It's 8.06 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Mozambique's municipal elections went ahead regardless of threats by the now-revived rebel movement Renamo that it will disrupt the election process. Renamo decided to boycott the elections, claiming that the Frelimo-led government has failed to adhere to the 1992 peace accord that ended the 16-year civil war. Mtobi Simkalipa reports from Maputo. As early as 6 in the morning, voters were already lined up in long queues in some voting stations in the capital city, Maputo. Josina Mashed Secondary School was among the more than 4,200 voting stations in all the 10 provinces. Voters came in numbers despite early threats by Renamo revived rebel movement that it will disrupt the elections. Armed clashes in the central and northern part of the country between Frelimo and Renamo, led by their commander, Alfonso Lakama, were also another worrying factor for the country as it was preparing for these elections. 19 parties and groups contested in 53 municipalities across the country's 10 provinces. The boycotting of the elections by Renamo gave their breakaway party, Mozambique Democratic Movement, an upper arm to contest the elections with Frelimo. Former Renamo member of parliament, Musa Ismail, is now contesting the elections as an independent candidate. Speaking at the Josina Marshall Voting Center, Ismail raised concerns about the lack of basic service delivery and development, especially in the capital city, Maputo. 
need together to work to change the Maputo situation. It's not easy to change the Maputo situation. So I believe that if we include all the people, it is easy to, to resolve the, the Maputo problems. Problems of the roads, in general, the poor, the uh, uh, social habitation, the traffic in roads in general. While some are hoping that their votes will bring change and see development in their areas, some like Ludes Samuel Malate says they are just exercising their constitutional right to vote and they are not anticipating any major changes. I think that we need to see the country going on. For me, everything is on track. I don't see any, any major change to see you know, in the future. I think in any African country you can see people in the streets. You can't just say that in Mozambique there are a lot of people in the street. In any African country because we are trying to develop. Some of the voters are urging the affected parties to meet and resolve the impulse. Been through a civil war. It's not good times that we want to remember. I believe that everybody wants peace in first place. That's my belief. Everybody that lives in Mozambique doesn't want to go through all that process again. If they sit and talk, they will solve the problem. Because I want the problem of the two persons that we know in Mozambique. Who's the first president of the Gebuza and the president of Ranamu Afosu Dakama. We need to change all the things. First, to change what the people think about they need to win in Maputo, for example. We got any, any, any problem because the problem of the, 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 the war takes plenty of people to the, to the town, you know. And then the agglomerate of the people in the town, they put any, any, any problems. Mozambique's National Elections Commission is expected to release the results soon. Tobisim Kalipi, Maputo, Mozambique. As millions of people in Mozambique went out to cast their votes yesterday, they were optimistic that peace will at last prevail after sporadic clashes in past months between government forces and the main opposition group Renamo, which boycotted the polls. Jonathan Lungu took to the streets of the capital Maputo to get a sense of what they're expecting after the elections. 24 Julio Avenue, the busy main street at the capital Maputo. Young and old are pushing and shoving one another as soon as a bus or a taxi stops for people to embark or disembark to the slums next to the road. On the opposite side of the street is Malanga Market, situated on the western side of the capital Maputo. 28-year-old Ketel Jose Shuma, a mother of two, is a vendor here. Shuma, like many other vendors crammed on the side of the road, started selling on the streets about a year ago. She relived her story that she was forced to leave schooling due to an early pregnancy. Since then, life has never been easy. She travels from Matola, a small town west of Maputo, to sell her products in the city. She says, a return trip cost her about 14 medical in Mozambican currency and about 5 rand in South African currency. The scorching heat rising up to 36 degrees forced her to erect a yellow umbrella on the pavement next to the main market. Well-packed produce like sweet potatoes, ground nuts, dried beans and homemade tea stuffed in a bag are the only means to put food on the table for her family. But Shuma is much more concerned about the ongoing clashes between Renamo, the revived the rebel movement and government forces up in the central and northern parts of Mozambique. She says most of the products they are selling come from some of the affected areas. 
The 20th was declared a public holiday in Mozambique to allow people like Schumer and others to go and vote. Some major retailers and small companies were closed, but Schumer seized the opportunity to make a few bucks before she could go and cast her vote later. She says casting her ballot will change their living condition. She hopes the new mayoral candidate will help them get clean water and sanitation. For her to survive, she is forced to bring water from home or a 300 milliliter water bottle will cost her 35 cents. Many people who voted also want peace and stability in the country that was ravaged by the 16-year civil war, forcing millions to flee to neighboring countries and others were killed. They are urging the authorities to discuss and find an amicable solution. I'm Jonathan Lungu, Malanga Market, Maputo, Mozambique. There's progress in the efforts against the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA, which continues to terrorize civilians in Central Africa. That's what Ambassador Abu Musa, the head of the UN office in Central Africa, UN OCA told the Security Council during a briefing on Wednesday. The LRA, which operated in Uganda and South Sudan in the 1990s, has extended its deadly activities to the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo. UN Radio's Derek Mbata caught up with Ambassador Musa before his briefing to the Security Council to discuss the threat that the LRA and its leader Joseph Kony posed to Central Africa. The African Union, in one of its deliberations, characterized the LRA as a terrorist group and has even asked the UN and the international community to do as much that they should be considered as terrorists because what they are doing is even more than being terrorists by maiming, cutting people's necks, pouring acid on people's faces, raping and forced enrollment of children under 14 years into the army, using women to carry what they have looted, and they have so many kids now that even after Kony is out of our way, we need to see how do we deal with those children who have been forced to come to life against their will. Now, Mr. Musa, on the fight against the LRA overall, how is that effort going? I think LRA is receiving a lot of pressure these days. This is because the regional force that is charged to track LRA is doing a good job and we are seeing results. LRA, Kony and his people are now orbit. There are defections already going on, but we also have news about possible surrender. But until it happens, we can't believe in it. We know Kony very well, so we have to wait until we see it concretely, even though we've received this information from very, very reliable source. Do you have any idea of where Kony is? Well, I don't know personally, but from indications we have, we gathered in our last trip to Central African region, authorities felt he is in Central African Republic. But, you know, Kony keeps moving, he can be here today, and tomorrow when he feels threatened, he goes elsewhere. And the other day I had some reports that he may have been to South Sudan, actually. Well, we had information there were some attacks, which is very funny, because in the last two years we've not received any attacks in South Sudan, but now we are very reliable source, particularly our office in Juba, confirms there were two attacks with about five people dead. That is new. So I think Kony and his people are finding ways to survive. Now the SG's report cites further progress in putting the AU regional cooperation plan into operation. How would you describe the military strategy of the operation now? 
The military strategy of the operation is yielding very positive results. And this is because we now have support. The Americans have posted 100 advisors. And I think the advice they are providing are yielding very positive results to what the commanders are doing. One other thing which is very important is the fact that contrary to the past, forces now can carry out cross-border operations. South Sudanese army have been able to go into the DRC and South Sudanese troops have been able to go into the CAR. So those are the new elements that is helping the troops to be able to be on the guard and able to track Kony properly. I think the support we are receiving from the American advisors on the ground is very, very important to underline. What about challenges? Are there any challenges that you can talk about in these efforts? Of course there are challenges. The challenges being that we need to know where Kony is and we need to get him out of our way. And the next challenge is to see how do we bring 400,000 refugees and IDPs back home how do we sell to them in the environment and provide them with security for them to live a better life? What is making it so difficult to catch this guy? It seems to be elusive. Well, Kony is elusive because of the environment. For those who may know, the area is more than two and a half or three times France, and we have only 3,000 troops. So there is no way you can use 3,000 troops effectively to track somebody if you don't have other means. And the means is very solid intelligence. Do we have a rough idea of the strength of the LRA right now? Well, LRA has never confirmed its strength. LRA, they are so spread out that you can't figure out how many there are. You can be 10 here, 20 there, but we feel that there should not be more than 500. If you add families and other, maybe 700 or so. Contrary to what we are receiving in terms of information, there will be 2,000 people to defect and to surrender. We don't believe that they are up to that number. What further measures would you like to see from regional actors and the international community? Well, I think the first thing I would like to see is that my office has requested to coordinate the strategy. We have done that. It's been sanctioned by the Security Council. Uh, We now need funds to be able to implement. Some of the activities have been funded and have been implemented, but the bulk of those activities are still not being funded. And we urge the international community, the donors, essentially, to support these activities that has been discussed, endorsed at all levels, and at the same time to thank those who have been able to support the efforts so far financially or otherwise. That was Ambassador Abu Musa, the head of the UN office in Central Africa, talking to Derek Mbata. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Sudanese government has admitted to bombing rebel positions in the volatile West Kordofan state in retaliation to intermittent attacks on their military barracks. The bombing has killed more than 30 people and wounded an unspecified number of civilians living near rebel positions. Our East Africa correspondent James Shimanyula reports. Republic of the Sudan official spokesman Hassan Ali Osman has confirmed that government military planes bombed the rebel positions in western Kordofan state in the Noba Mountain. Osman admitted that the bombing was in retaliation for intermittent attacks that the rebels have been carrying out on government military barracks in Kordofan. What we call the SPLA North Sector, they many times shell the cities in uh, south of Kordofan state. They kill 
killed innocent people in Kadugli. Kadugli that Osman is referring to is one of the cities in western Kordofan state. Although Osman did not disclose casualty figures, government military and rebel sources say more than 30 people were killed with the scores of others seriously wounded. Among those killed in the bombing were two children as one of SPLM North Sector Rebel Commander Khalid Abdikadir confirms. Clouds of uh, smoke is from Jet 24. Right now it kills uh, two children. Let us now listen to the sound of MiG-24 Russian-made military planes approaching the skies around Rebel Stronghold in Western Kordofan. Shortly after the planes reached the point where they dropped bombs, sounds of horrified screaming civilians were heard. <laughs> Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A new report released yesterday is accusing Kenya's anti-terror police unit of committing human rights abuses that violate international, regional and domestic law in its counter-terrorism efforts. The report, based on over 40 interviews carried out by researchers from the Open Society Justice Initiative and Muslim for Human Rights, a non-governmental organization based in Mombasa, accuses the unit of torture, lengthy detentions and extrajudicial killings of terror suspects. Sarah Kimani reports. This, the report says, has been counterproductive in Kenya's fight against terror. Jonathan Horowitz works for the Open Society Foundation. Absolutely, there's a threat that needs to be dealt with. The police, the government has a responsibility to its citizens to deal with that threat, but it also has a responsibility to its citizens to deal with the threat lawfully um, and in a respectful manner that lends credibility to the government as opposed to types of actions that will make the community, as has happened in the coastal region in particular, that will make the community more upset at the government. There has been over 30 terror attacks in Kenya since the Kenyan troops entered Somalia in 2011. The anti-terror police unit is credited for stopping dozens of other attacks, but now human rights organizations say young Muslims have been on the receiving end of Kenya's war against terror. Horowitz again. There are four particular categories of abuses. One is detainee abuse. So people are picked up as terrorist suspects and they're beaten at the point of capture. They're beaten during interrogations while they're being driven around, often late at night for hours on end. Another type of abuse is disappearances. The report documents at least one case of a man, um, Badru Rumba, who was disappeared on November 14, 2012, um, where he was taken by people who introduced themselves as police officers. A third category of abuse are uh, extrajudicial killings or unlawful use of lethal. The fourth category of abuses is a failure to investigate a spate of murders and disappearances in Mombasa of terrorist suspects 
who were um, killed or murdered by unknown perpetrators. So- Days after the Westgate terror attack in which 67 people were killed, riots broke out in the coastal town of Mombasa after the assassination of a radical Muslim cleric Ibrahim Omar Rogo. Rogo, who was in the company of four others, was killed together with three of them. His death came more than a year after that of his predecessor, Sheikh Abud Rogo, who has been linked to the Al-Shabaab militant group. In both cases, the Muslim community blamed the police for the deaths, but police have denied any involvement. The report recommends a radical shift in the police unit's operations, including freezing of donor funding to the unit, one of the best funded in the country. First and foremost, it recommends that anti-terrorism police unit officers are held accountable for their abuses. And this can happen at a number of levels. The director of public prosecutions, the independent police oversight authority, the inspector general of police all have responsibilities, as well as the ATPU, all have responsibilities at holding officers' feet to the fire when they act outside the bounds of law. In addition to that, the report recommends that the international community, the donor community, continues to encourage Kenya's very good and robust police reform agenda. It's been slow going. It's been problematic. There are indications that there's a lack of political will to fulfill the full police reform agenda, but that portions of the Kenyan government, and importantly the foreign donor community, push for the police agenda to move forward. At the same time, the report recommends the foreign donor community to withhold security assistance to parts of the anti-terrorism police unit that are responsible for the types of abuses documented in the report that we've issued. The anti-terror police unit declined to comment on the report. An officer at the department said they were still studying the contents of the 80-page document. Meanwhile, a bill application for four suspects held in connection with September's Westgate Mall attack has been moved to 28th of this month. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Humanitarian aid has finally reached the coastal city of Palompon in the Philippines. Seven people were killed in the area after Typhoon Haiyan struck. South African NGO Gift of the Givers chartered barges to sail to typhoon-struck areas. For an update from the Philippines, our reporter Minoshni Pillay joins us on the line from Palompon. Minoshni, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning to you and good afternoon from where I am. Okay. Minoshni, how would you describe the level of destruction in, in Palompon compared to other areas you've visited already? Well, uh, Palompon is quite a huge minute. Traveled it quite extensively. Uh, and, you know, the, here the level of destruction is quite... Houses have been destroyed, schools are closed... Uh, initially, after the typhoon, there was no access, so aid and medical and relief aid couldn't get to people in the town because the roads were being blocked by trees. But what we discovered as we traveled further along the west coast, we tra- visited areas like Cantuhaun and Buena Vista yesterday, is that the further up you travel, the worse the destruction gets close to Takloban. Uh, we visited an area called Buena Vista yesterday. Out of the 500 homes, only three were standing. Uh, the school is totally shattered, so teachers are really trying to pick up the pieces. And one of the difficulties communities are having in the area is that because people are so busy trying to rebuild their homes, schools are having a problem because parents aren't available to help rebuild schools or put up temporary shelters so classes can resume. The positive news is that local government here and the teachers are quite amped to get schools uh, and classes back, back to normal as of Monday. That's been the mandate here. But right now, you know, that looks a little bit impossible because 
literally there are no schools, or there's very few schools to, to house these children mm. in. Now, Minoshni, what sort of aid is Gift of the Givers providing to the locals? You know, in various forms. There is a relief aid in the form of water has been a huge issue, especially getting to these communities, because mm. as I've been, you know, letting you guys know in my reports, the main focus has been on Takloban, uh, you know, from local and international media. Because of that, uh, cities like Palampon, Buena Cantahan have had very little, you know, aid in terms of even water. Where we are, there is only electricity from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So the Gifted to Givers has brought with it uh, relief aid in terms of water, food, canned goods. Uh, after doing assessments of various areas, town halls, town halls are being used as central points for backup mm-hmm. generators. So the way that will work is that the local council will control their generator. People, one cell phone per household, for instance, will come and be charged there. But this also means that the entire town runs off one generator. Mm-hmm. Um, but also things like, you know, chainsaws, uh, cutting material to clear away the debris that's gathered after the typhoon. Uh, search and rescue teams have come with the gift of the givers. They're physically picking up huge trees, moving them out of ways, creating access roads that more medical and, you know, relief aid can get through. But I think the other really exciting thing that the gift of the givers has brought to Palampon is medical relief. There is a team of doctors. They're divided into five teams, uh, and they're going to five municipalities. Yesterday, we looked images where doctors saw patients for the first time since the typhoon hit. Now, these are children that haven't had their vaccinations, uh, patients on chronic medication, old people being carried on their children's backs just to get to rural clinics. Uh, so the level of the impact of the typhoon, you know, is, is really shocking. Uh, and I don't think you realize it until you actually are able to physically see it, you know, for yourself. Mm. Now, Minoshni, tell me, apart from Gift of the Givers, what other aid agencies are, are, are with you guys at Palampon? There's quite a few aid agencies from across the world, actually. And we, we met them when we were in Cebu. It's our, you know, ferry ride from mm-hmm. Palampon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's teams from Switzerland, UNICEF is here, uh, uh, Indonesia, Korea. But the main problem that all these teams have been having is logistics. Is logistics. Mm-hmm. We've been in the Philippines for a week now, but getting to base camp has proved extremely challenging, uh, mainly because initially the airports were closed, so flying was a problem. How do you fly in five tons of aid? Mm-hmm. Uh, road access has been a problem. Uh, ferrying has been a problem because everybody wants to send aid, but there's a waiting list of, you know, how and when that aid gets there. And then when it gets to the local municipalities, how it's distributed. So, you know, there are relief organizations that are doing some really good work uh, from across the world, but the logistical concerns on the island is proving a little bit challenging. Now, Minoshni, before I let you go, apart from uh, the challenges of, of uh, traveling and getting to certain areas to, to give aid to people, to assist people, can you briefly tell us about your journey from the time you arrived at the airport and, uh, you know, up until now? We arrived in Manila last week, and we were pleasantly surprised. Because I'm sure many people, you know, many people had the impression that we would arrive in the Philippines and there would be destruction from the minute you hit the ground. But, you know, this wasn't the case. There's a part of the Philippines that has been hit by Typhoon Haiyan. And its capital, Manila, is, you know, apart from the emotional concerns that, you know, going through the people's minds there, 
there's very little destruction there. So the typhoon really didn't spread inland. Um, so from Manila, we spent a few days there, and it was really trying to get all the right you know, nuts and bolts in place so that when we got to base camp, the gift of the givers team, the search and rescue teams, the doctors could go out, have all the aid that had been shipped and flown here with them in their possession and then be in villages and distributed. But I must tell you, what's been so amazing is the spirit of the people of this country. When we arrived at base camp, everybody got here so weary after a treacherous eight-hour ferry ride. And it's not as pleasant as it sounds, but... When the minute we got here, we were welcomed with open arms. We had a hot meal from people that didn't have homes. They'd gotten together. They prepared meals for the team. They're, they're preparing three meals a day for everybody. Um, you know, whatever little they have, we have. Whatever little we have as a team, they have. And that's really been the spirit. They even, you know, went to extreme lengths to set up a Wi-Fi connection for the journalists to file. So... You know, that's been such an, a humbling experience, such mm-hmm. an eye-opening experience that wherever we go, we hear the word thank you before people even know what we're there to do. Um, and I think that is something that everybody in this team will take back when we return next week. Minoshni, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. That was our reporter Minoshni Pillay joining us live from Palampon in the Philippines. Tracy Boomgard, what's happening in your headlines? Thank you, Lulu. Mozambique's National Election Commission is to withhold election results from Nampula in the north of the country. Nigerian legislatures have approved a six-month extension for the state of emergency that is governing the country's northeastern states. And Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has persuaded the Palestinian peace negotiation team to return to the job. And I'll have a full bulletin at the top of the hour. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Both South Africa and Botswana say the newly established Binational Commission, BNC, will help to oversee the economic and political relations between the two countries at the presidential level. South African President Jacob Zuma will host his Botswana counterpart Ian Kama for the inaugural session of the BNC between the two sister republics in Pretoria later this morning. This inaugural meeting follows the signing of an agreement to establish the South Africa Botswana BNC during President Zuma's state visit to Khaburoni last year. Ndebo Mukobo has more. Botswana and South Africa enjoy strong historical, political and Nepali relations which date back to the dark days of apartheid. The two countries also enjoy family ties with intermarriages between peoples of the two nations. During South Africa's liberation struggle, many freedom fighters, including former ANC presidents Oliver Tambo and Nelson Mandela, used Botswana as an exit point to other countries in the region and beyond for military training. And now the new crop of leadership from both countries wants to deepen these historical relations to benefit Botswana and ordinary South Africans. Last year, President Jacob Zuma undertook a two-day state visit to Botswana, where he presided over the signing of three bilateral agreements. The highlight of his visit was the signing of the establishment of the Pi National Commission. 
Botswana President Siretsa Kama Ian Kama said the Pai National Commission is a testimony of the seriousness of their relations, describing it as a sign of better things to come. We have had these discussions which have enabled us to chart a way forward in further expanding the scope of our bilateral relations, as well as improve the welfare of our people. I wish to point out that the elevation of our bilateral issues from operational level to that of head of state is not only a manifestation of the importance with which we attach to our bilateral relations, but a sign of the seriousness of our two governments to ensure that these relations are taken to greater heights. In a bid to help meet its energy needs, South Africa wants to tap into Botswana's vast coal reserves. Both countries have also signed an agreement on energy, and President Zuma said this will go a long way in addressing the country's electricity challenge. As you know, both countries need each other in terms of energy. The coal that is here is going to be very useful because in terms of the size of the consumption, South Africa would certainly consume more. And here we'll have a country which is friendly, which has good relations with us, wherein we could complement each other. But it also talks to the SADC kind of economic development and the expansion of the economic activities. The two sister republics have also agreed to work together in the creation of jobs through beneficiation. As the world's largest diamond producer, Botswana has been selling its uncut diamonds on the world market since the precious stones were discovered in Haburone over four decades ago. But from now onwards, the diamond trading company of Botswana will cut and polish Botswana diamonds before selling them. And now its neighbor, which has embarked on an industrial policy plan anchored on job creation and beneficiation, this comes in handy for South Africa. President Suma explains. In our plans for industrialization of our country, beneficiation is part of it. The plans are there. It involves part of what will be the beneficiation in terms of our mineral resources. But yes, with regard to Botswana, we are going to learn a lot out of what the Botswanas have done and how they've done it. Certainly the question of beneficiation is what is in fact the way to go in terms of minerals in our country. The inaugural session of the South Africa Botswana Binational Commission was preceded by the ministerial meeting of the foreign affairs departments of both countries and the two presidents are expected to sign agreed minutes and the implementation plan drafted by their ministers. Ntebu Mukobo in Pretoria. Chairperson of the African Union, Gosazana Zamini Zuma, has called for the investment into skills development to expedite Africa's transformation into a prosperous continent. She was speaking at a gala dinner to mark the 160th anniversary of Adams College in South Africa's coastal city of Durban last night. Zamini Zuma says there's need for what she calls a skills revolution in order to meet the continent's skills requirement across various sectors of of the economy. The event was attended by the alumni of Adams College, government officials and U.S. Consulate General Taylor Ruggles. Zanele Butelezi reports. Adams College is the second oldest African school in the country. It was started in 1853 in Amanzim Dodi, south of Durban, with the help of Dr. Newton Adams and American missionaries. It helped to develop many prominent African leaders from in and outside of South Africa. The college boasts of alumni such as ANC leaders John Langalibailele Dube, Pixliga Isaga Seme, Josiah Kumede, the first ANC Youth League president Anton Lembede, and IFP leader Gosimangosutubutelezi. Africa's first Nobel Peace Prize winner, Chief Albert Lutuli, taught at the college. 
former Chief Justice Pius Langa and Dr. J.M. Nembula, the first African medical doctor in Southern Africa, came from Adams. Other African leaders who attended at the college include Botswana's first democratic president, Sir Serete Khama, and Zimbabwe's Joshua Nkomo. A future person, Kosazana Tlamini Zuma, who's also a former student, joined in on the celebrations marking the 160th anniversary of the college. When I look at the roll call of former students and teachers of Adams College, there are many amongst them who went on to become pioneers and founders in their fields and organizations as a true embodiment of its motto, Arise and Shine. She says it was both good education and the experiences they had at the college that shaped them. When Ferrut died, we were taken out of class. We had a holiday that day. And then when his funeral came, we all asked to wear our uniforms, sit in the hall and listen to the funeral. When Inkosi Albert Lutuli, who had taught in that school, died, it wasn't even announced let alone a memorial. That shaped some of us and made us determined that, yes, we will get what is positive out of this school, but we must be part of change of, of our country. Lamini Zuma believes the college can still help to provide solutions to some of the challenges facing the continent. She called for an investment to be made into skills development. With and explosively high levels of young unemployed youth. Africa, therefore, does need this skills revolution, but this skills revolution must match the demands of the economy, the demands of the public sector, so that when young people are trained in, in different skills, they are able to be employed. Adams College headmaster Tulan Kumalo says they have been able to maintain the school's legacy. I'm saying this because our institution continues uh, to produce excellent academic results year after year. We are very much aware that notwithstanding our proud and rich history, any good school is judged on its current results and achievements. We have therefore set very high standards for ourselves. Speakers said there's a need to restore the school to its former glory days as an international college. The National Heritage Council as well as the Arts and Culture Department have pledged their commitment to ensuring that the country's historic schools are preserved. Zanelo Butelezi, Durban. The world's poorest countries need to create decent jobs to break the cycle of poverty and avoid social instability, according to the latest report by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNC. TAD. 49 countries are currently designated by the United Nations as least developed countries or LDCs ranging from Afghanistan to Zambia. These countries are facing demographic challenges as their population is projected to double to 1.7 billion by 2050. The majority population will be young and of working age. Jocelyn Sambira reports. The least developed countries, or LDCs, need to make significant efforts 
to generate a sufficient number of jobs and offer decent employment opportunities to their young population. That's the key message in the UNCTAD Least Developed Countries Report 2013. Although the LDCs have in the past experienced periods of relative growth, this is not translated into more jobs. In fact, this period has been described as a jobless growth. Now, with 130 million people expected to enter the labor force in the LDCs by 2020, responding to the employment challenge will be difficult. Warns Mukisa Kitui, UNCTAD's Secretary General. In spite of the global downturn, LDCs have relatively survived doing well on a growth path over the past decade or two. If during that growth they could not create employment, when will they create the jobs? Any model of development will severely be undermined unless the urgent question of sustainable quality income and livelihoods is addressed as the core essence of the development narrative out of the LDCs in the coming period. Mr. Kitui also notes that the majority of people in the LDCs who are self-employed earn barely enough to survive. This so-called vulnerable employment accounts for 80 percent of the jobs in these countries. Growth in the world's poorest countries, therefore, has not been inclusive, and its contribution to poverty reduction has been limited. Quality jobs that offer better salaries and working conditions for the youth are lacking. The youth population in the LDCs, aged 15 to 24 years, is expected to reach 300 million by 2050, when one in four youths worldwide will be living in an LDC. The director of the division of the least developed countries, Tesfatu Tafere, says he's deeply concerned about the state of things. The numbers are very frightening, and whether this group of countries will create about 100 million or so jobs by the end of this decade is questionable. That report by Jocelyn Sambira. Wisani Makubele, how are you this morning? All good. How are you? Excuse me. I'm good, thank you.、Mm. Now, Botswana is refuting claims that、uh, fracking is underway in the country. Yes,、uh, there are claims already, as there are concerns regarding the environment.、Mm-hmm. Um, claims also say South Africa's Sasol is involved.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Australian-based Tamborand Resources、mm-hmm. and Anglo-American are involved, but、um, Botswana denies keeping its citizens in the dark. So basically, they're denying everything. Yes, they are. They、okay. are. All right. Well, we'll see as time goes on. Can you give us an update on your economics news? Good morning. The African Development Bank has approved $68 million in financing for the multinational Ingasite Development and Electricity Access Support Project (PASAL). The project will further the development of Inga hydropower plant located on the banks of the Congo River, with a vast hydroelectric potential estimated at 44,000 megawatts. Half of the continent's installed electricity capacity. Pascal will finalize the preparation of the first phase of the Grand Inga Hydropower Project, called the Inga Three Project. 
It will consist of developing a power-generating capacity of 4,800 megawatts on the Inga site and building power transmission lines that will supply electricity to the DRC and South Africa. Current demand for electricity in the region is huge and steady, guaranteeing a market for the energy to be produced from the hydropower plant. More groups have expressed opposition to electronic tolling after the South African government announced yesterday that the system would commence on Gauteng Province's freeways. Civil rights group AfriForum says if the public accepts e-tolling without protest, government will be able to launch similar projects without considering more cost-effective recoupment methods. Rulani Baloi has more. AfriForum CEO Kali Creel says they will not register their company vehicles for e-tolls. Ahang SA has warned that traffic will move on to smaller roads and neighborhood streets not built to deal with huge increases in traffic volumes. Kosatu, the DA, the IFP and lobby group Auta were among those who earlier slammed yesterday's announcement by Transport Minister Dipur Peters. Peters said e-tolling was necessary to maintain a world-class road network. Botswana's government says environmental protection is key in its search for natural gas, rejecting claims that freaking is already underway in the country's top wildlife park. This week, the Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa, or CISAM, said Botswana had granted concessions over vast tracts of land while keeping the public in the dark about the development. Fracking or hydraulic fracturing has met with intense resistance from environmental groups in countries such as the United States who say the process damages the environment. South Africa's Sasol, Australian-based Tamboran Resources and Anglo-American are said to be among petroleum companies granted drilling licenses. The rush for natural gas has been seen as a growth-boosting alternative by countries seeking investment Botswana's diamond-led economy has been has seen a slump due to slow export earnings. Progress on climate finance is crucial for fueling confidence in the negotiations on climate change. That's according to the UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon. He was speaking yesterday at a ministerial meeting on climate finance taking place in Warsaw, Poland. Ban has warned that climate change is the greatest single threat to peace, prosperity and sustainable development, adding that it's critical to scale up action on the ground. What we need should be clear to us all. First, stable investment policies and conducive regulatory frameworks. Second, more public finance. Third, more private finance. And fourth, better mechanisms for channeling investment to where they are most needed. This is what we did at this time. Climate change is a threat to economies large and small and to the stability of the global financial system. Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Kosazana Dlamini Zuma, has called for investment in skills development to expedite Africa's transformation into a prosperous continent. She was speaking at a gala dinner to mark the 160th anniversary of Adams College in Durban in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province last night. Dlamini Zuma says there's a need for what she calls a skills revolution in order to meet the continent's skills requirement across various sectors of the economy. With and explosively high levels of young unemployed youth. Africa, therefore, 
does need this skills revolution, but this skills revolution must match the demands of the economy, the demands of the public sector, so that when young people are trained in, in different skills, they are able to be employed. And financial indicators. The US dollar is trading at 10.15 South African rands, 8.47 Botswana Pulas, and 5.52 Zambian Kwachas. It's also trading at 0.62 British pound and 0.74 to the euro. Gold is at $1,247 and platinum at $1,395 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $108.35 a barrel. And that's the economics news. Back to Lulu Gabu. Thank you, Wisani. Now, Tami, there was uh, a report yeah. about, uh, with regards to sports, about... Um, what is that statement that was made? Something to do with uh, Spain, the Spain and Bafana Bafana game oh, not no. being recognized you, you, by no. FIFA? You know what happened? Uh-huh. Uh, there was a player that was not supposed to play. Uh-huh. However, the player was let in to play because one of the Spanish player was injured. Mm-hmm. And then now we were docked uh, about 500 points. So that reduced the match to a mere uh, friendly. friendly match. So a not yes. a, 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 what's not the right an word? international friendly match that is recognized by FIFA on FIFA friendly days. So now that drops our ranking as yeah, well because sure. we beat but Spain. It, 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 it's you know? That's why the coach was so angry. But we'll see how it panned out because we're still waiting for the response. What is going to because you see, I, you know, this is what I fail to understand when mm-hmm. you know exactly that. This player is not supposed to play. And then you let the player... Yes, play what, is the, what is you the... You get this kind yeah. of results. So mm-hmm. we, we, we look into it. it. It's developing. It was planned. I think it was part <laughs> of the whole plan. <laughs> when they realized that we were winning. Yeah, for sure. You know, <laughs> that let's not make it... Uh, uh, but let's wait and see. And uh, yeah, maybe FIFA will yeah. Yeah, change its yeah. mind. Well, give us an update. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with soccer. Celebrations for Algeria's victory over Burkina Faso that sent the country's soccer team to the 2014 World Cup Finals left 12 people dead and some 240 injured. People poured into the street after the game and most of the deaths and injuries appeared to be from road accidents as cars raced around honking their horns in celebration. The statement from the emergency services said five celebration fans were killed when their van slid off the road into a ravine in the mountain town of Bejaia, which is east of Algeria, while four others died in the southern city of Biskra when two trucks collided. The remaining two deaths occurred in two towns of Tipaza and Msila. Residents described a great deal of reckless behavior in the course of the celebrations that continued throughout the night in some cities. 
And our back home, South Africa's Bafana coach Gordon Igesan says their 1-0 victory over world champion Spain on Tuesday indicated that they are benefiting from a clear strategy outline. Igesan says the national soccer team needed to remain realistic in the build-up towards qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. He added that he is looking forward to watching his young squad continue to grow in confidence with more international experience aiding them in the future tournaments. And in local football, a potential explosive encounter lies in wait for Kaiser Chiefs when they take on Platinum Stars in their Telcom knockout competition semi-final over the weekend. And coach Stuart Best has warned his troops about the dangers that the Platinum Stars pose. Stars have already tested success this season, having lifted the MTNA title by beating Orlando Pirates in September. Meanwhile, Supersport United are also looking to sweep Orlando Pirates aside and make history by qualifying for their first ever Telcom knockout challenge final. And now in rugby, the core of the South African Springbok team that has played in the 2013 has been selected to start in the final match of the season, marking 100 years of Test Rugby against France in Paris on Saturday evening. Tendam Tawarira, Bismarck Duplessis, Eben Edsworth and Monestein returned to the starting lineup after last weekend's 28-0 win over Scotland in Edinburgh for the last match of the outgoing tour. Springbok coach Haneke Meyer believes that he has the perfect mix of young and experience in his match 23 to play against France and Paris. Yeah, in a sense, but I don't think you need to read too much into that. Um, the reason I've done it is that uh, both uh, Willem Arbut and Franchelot have been struggling with uh, needles uh, the last few games. And, um, so I wanted to fresh loose force to back them up on the bench. And uh, the other reason being that uh, you know, it's Lawrence's first game I always wanted to give Peter Steph that was also the planning before the, before the tour that he will, he will get game time in the, in the third test. And uh, I just felt now with, uh, with Lawrence coming in, Peter Steph his second game, and see how it's not experienced. Suddenly, uh, you know, if you bring guys on last 20. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. UN envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in Central Africa. Vote counting continues in Mozambique. And Botswana and South Africa set to boost relations. That wraps up Africa Rouse and Shan today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Matter Fix with Living Dafu. <laughs> Tears that flow like rivers from the skies Where it seems there are only borderlines Where others turn inside You shall rise Don't have to be destroyed
Shall rise. Happy, you shall.